we are back. Back, back, back. Back again. This is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's slipperiest, most grandiloquent environmental news hour, most taxing listen <laughs> north of the 49th. We also might be present on your glorious community radio stations or on your podcast app, the Harbinger Media Network. I am David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks for listening. Yes, and we are going to do a beautiful slew of environmental news. Stefan will be interviewing Rachel Wang of the bike group. The Bike Brigades. The Bike Brigades. What exactly do they do? They started during the pandemic, basically biking to get to, to tackle sort of food security and other uh, issues where people couldn't go outside and couldn't get their stuff. And they sort of work with their community partners to bike the goods that are needed to the people who need them. And your second interview today, you have two of them. Yes. The second second one is with a documentary filmmaker who has made a documentary whose name I dare not speak on community radio because it is just grotesque. And the lengths people will go to these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, the middle of the show will be a quick interview with Andrew Gregg, who's a documentary filmmaker of the, of the film Bug Sex, which is about exactly what you'd guess. Also known as buggery. No. Okay, so I'm going to do the news. Let's dive in. A new study published by the American Geophysical Union states, quote, the latest projections indicate that sea level rise is certain to exceed two meters in coming centuries, and a rise by four meters is considered possible. Now, that's from 2021, that's that. I didn't even mm. realize that was the case, because that's a lot of rise. Oh, yeah. That's like there goes a lot of cities. The study found, though, this is the new find, the study found uh, that the in the early stages of this coming sea level rise, Certain coastal areas have almost twice as much land in danger than previously thought. So there are certain places that are more prone to flooding, and those places are now twice as large as was considered to be the case before. Yeah, and so very quickly before we get to, to the rest of the news, I want to harp on this one topic to point out a thing that annoyed me earlier today, which was a tweet from uh, Matthew Iglesias who's, uh, for those who don't know, sort of a left, center-leftist, uh, or center-left-centrist, as I wrote it, wrote it down, um, that, uh, that annoyed me. And it sort of, I want, then this story helps give me clarity as to what annoyed me about the tweet. And the statement was, quote, I want to get to a place where to really care a lot about the climate issue means you know a lot of information, a lot of true information about how the energy system works and what the lowest cost, highest benefit decarbonization strategies are. Wow. Which, on the face of it, is a perfectly, like, fine thought. You know, like, there's undoubtedly a ton of work to be done about educating people about how the energy grid works. And so doing so would drastically improve our ability to decarbonize the grid. That's that's true. But my problem with this way of thinking is that it sort of just takes decarbonizing the grid as the end-all, be-all of climate action, while it's just like one tiny part. You know, getting to carbon zero electricity is a huge step forward, but it won't save Florida, much less the low-lying Pacific islands that are already buying land in Australia to move their entire country there as water risks their livelihoods today. Nor will it answer the question 
of what we do as insurance companies stop protecting houses in flood zones or fire areas, nor will it ensure that the millions of people displaced by climate are taken care of. Climate action is going to need basically every field and will require change on basically every level. And so the way that these sort of technocrats want to limit it to just energy systems, in my eyes, is only really an attempt to protect the status quo from any real reckoning, which is a reckoning that is desperately, desperately needed. Yeah. Hey, just circling back to the story. It's it's terrifying. I think I think I pull I think I pulled a reference to the same study that you're that you're referring to here, Dave. But it's like one of the things that it, it, it suggests um, or not that it suggests, but that it finds and that and that it's published here is that. Um, the LIDAR data suggests that a two meter increase in sea level could put most of Bangkok and its 10 million residents below sea level. Um, other data suggests, um, anyway, according to their later estimate, like globally, it would result in something like 240 million people below sea level, which is just like a really hard number to wrap your brain around. That's almost the entire population of the United States. Like not quite, but like it's, it's, it's well on its way there anyway. I don't want to talk about Matthew Iglesias too much, but he is such an interesting person because like as a as a podcast listener, I remember listening to him like years ago back when Vox used to put out the weeds, which was like this pretty great deep dive into it was American policy, unfortunately, but it was like a deep dive into policy. And not that I always agreed with him, but he never seemed that out of left field. And the more, the older he gets, I almost feel like at a certain point, he's going to go like, maybe not full Glenn Glenn Greenwald in the sense of like, he's not going to become like a weirdo conspiracy theorist wackadoo who talks to like Alex Jones or whatever. But it, Matt Iglesias is one of those people who like 10 years ago seemed relatively reasonable. And now it's like, whoa, what are you talking about, buddy? You're right. Like when you say like center left center, it's like, I would say center right center at this point it's like his takes are so bizarre anyway we don't need to talk about Matt Iglesias there's more environment news but he is such a bizarro person and he just will not go away he's just always on Twitter with his bad takes with his bad neoliberal takes who is actually going to learn about what he like what he said well this is what I mean going to learn that and so he's just he's just like hamstringing environmentalism climate action itself yeah exactly it's like i want climate action to be boring and about things that i think are important and not what other people think are important and it's like grow up he takes a soulless approach to his policy solutions all right now moving on to more climate news the energy mix on the latest edition of the corporate climate responsibility monitor reports quote of the 24 companies in the study 15 rated low or very low on the integrity of their climate plans. Half of them, including Apple, DHL, Google, and Microsoft, are already making carbon neutrality claims, but these claims only cover 3% of those companies' emissions. More worrying still, three-quarters of the corporations plan to offset or neutralize a significant portion of their emissions using carbon credits from forestry and other land-use projects. Investigative journalist Jeremy Lafrido uh, visited East Palestine, Ohio recently and discovered that a private security company hired by Norfolk Southern has been monitoring residents and policing the town in the wake of the toxic train crash. Lafrido also discovered rivers of dead wildlife well beyond the official evacuation area. The environmental consulting firm that has been hired to do tests in the area has a history of lying for corporations and is owned by BlackRock. 
BlackRock is also an owner of Norfolk Southern, whose mismanagement caused the crash. So not only do they have the crash and the evacuation, they have this security hired by the company to go in and, and do whatever they feel like. And then they... Jesus. And they also have uh, another entity, uh, an environmental consulting firm, telling everybody it's okay, uh, which is also owned by BlackRock. So moving on, Environmental Defense is reporting on a recent study about the land available for housing in Ontario. The study was authored by Kevin Eby, and it found that even if we build unnecessarily large suburban sprawl homes, we already have almost twice as much land in existing urban areas under the greater Golden Horseshoe than we need to meet our housing targets. The study also found that many municipalities required no or extremely limited urban expansions to accommodate the population growth that's been forecast into the 2050s. Finally, a new study published by PNAS Nexus, that's the proceedings for the National Academy of American Sciences Nexus uh, journal, magazine, has found that the Atlantic forest of Brazil was made much healthier in areas where indigenous communities were given legally recognized authority over the land. Previous studies have indicated similar findings, but this study is specifically about an area that is under high threat of development and is the first rigorous analysis of the Atlantic forest biome. The authors write, quote, Our findings may support an environmental argument to recognize indigenous peoples with legal land rights. And one of the other aspects of the study was that what they, they call it tenure. And so, and so indigenous groups that were sort of pre-tenured or considered to be you know, unofficially stewards of the land, it was only until they actually got legally recognized that, that the forest um, improved. It's good that research to support this point continues to come out because these, I feel like at least in my spaces, um, questions around like land back and conservation and biodiversity are, are sort of, it's, it's not that they're new, they're not new at all, but they're increasing in popularity. And I think, I think conversations, at least within so-called Canada around this topic really sort of um, picked up last year after COP15 in December, which was um, the convention on biodiversity COP. So different from the one that happened in Egypt, but it, anyway, these conversations are picking up in Canada. So anytime research like this comes out that supports the notion that handing land back to Indigenous peoples and like in a legally binding way, um, well, in a way that should theoretically be recognized by the Canadian court system, which I mean, you could argue that we already do have those contracts that that like legally support the notion that Indigenous peoples should have tenure over their land. Anyway, this is getting convoluted. What I'm trying to say is, this is great. Glad the study's out here. Happy that we're promoting it and circulating it. To jump back uh, just for a second uh, to the story about the Greenbelt and in some of the greater, uh, in some of the what, the attacks of the Ford government on it, I just want to take a quick second to direct folks to some great reporting that's, been, that's being done uh, by a friend of the show, Fatima Syed, uh, with the Narwhal. As as well as as you are likely aware, the Narwhal, in particular, particularly Fatima and Emma McIntosh, have been doing some incredible reporting in the past few months about the Green Belt. And this new piece titled, quote, Immigrants are not the reason Ontario's Green Belt is being developed, is a must read. 
particularly because the claim that is refuted in this piece is one that the conservative government has been making again and again, trying to turn their backroom deals to line the pockets of their developer wedding guests into magnanimous acts of caring for new Canadians. The way they'd, they the way they'd have you understand it, the only way to accept the three hundred thousand new people that the GTA should expect in the next year is to pave over the greenbelt, creating a new angle in the economy versus environment line that conservatives have used for so long now. But now it's immigration versus the environment. And critical thinkers will hear like a little hint of Malthus in that argument that more people must equal destruction. And we should flatly reject Ford, the Ford government's premise as quickly as we reject Malthus, as quickly as we reject Malthus. And this is because the issue across North America is not available land, but zoning. The places that have successfully seen housing prices drop are the places that have allowed for more multi-unit housing to be built close to services. They're places where you don't have apartment buildings held up because a few units don't have parking spaces, which is a real example, I'll have you know, that just happened in Ottawa a few days ago. There was a development proposed that I approximately had like 100 units and only 90, par 90 parking spaces. And the city council was like, mm, I don't know, everyone can't park. I guess we shouldn't allow this to go through and like pause the development of the housing. For as long as that is happening, you cannot tell me that the green belt is necessary. Like that's 100 units that you're just being like, well, wait a bit longer and maybe make 10 more parking spaces. People need housing, not cars. Um, but anyways, uh, the only people that building on the Greenbelt land truly benefits is the people who own the land. And those people are decidingly not the people we will be welcoming over the coming years. And to use those people as a scapegoat for this kind of environmental destruction is to once again push blame onto the most vulnerable populations or some of the most vulnerable populations in this province. So please, please, please do go check out this article. Support the Narwhal and their work. Um, and yeah, know that you do not have to pave over the green belt to house enough people. That's not how we've done it in any of the places that have successfully done this. Sprawl has never solved the housing crisis. And now we will go to some music and return with Stefan's interview. Which one are we going to first? Andrew Gregg. With Andrew Gregg. His film called Bug Sex.
And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, but anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. However you found us, thank you so much for being here. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here, as previewed earlier on the show, with Andrew Gregg of Red Trillium Films, who recently directed a, a wonderfully titled documentary titled Bug Sex, which will premiere on March 10th on The Nature of Things. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Um, the, the title, uh, not to dive right in, but just the title, you don't get a title like this too often. Um, it's like Snakes on a Plane or Cocaine Bear. Yeah, you know exactly. exactly what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no ambiguity. We are here. It's talking about bug sex. That's what yeah. we're doing. Let's do it. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Um. Awesome. Okay. So, I mean, as a as a Kevin, we were talking just before we started recording about one of the reasons why this is so important is the fact that insects are so important. Mm-hmm. You know, we've covered earlier on the show just how, you know, increasingly frightened uh, insectologists and, and really people worried about biodiversity loss in general have become as insect numbers have declined across uh, across the globe. And so knowing more about how these bugs reproduce and lear- is is increasingly important because, you know, if we want to keep these by, because it's not just about keeping just the number of insects alive. It's, you know, it's good. It's about biodiversity. It's about mm. trying to make sure that all insects that, that currently are alive in the species, all the all species, because like even just decreasing the number of species to like say six would be much worse for the, for the world than the millions of different types of species. So it's, it's a, it's both a broad and deep field, uh, this topic of bug sex. And so, uh, by way of introduction, can you just tell me uh, what interested you in this topic? Like, why did you why did you set up to do this? Well, we had done another film, another documentary for the nature of things uh, in just before COVID, um, twenty nineteen, I think it was on. It was called First Animals, and um, it was about like the dawn of life on Earth and the Burgess Shale fossils. But I worked with uh, Dr. Marianne Andrade from the University of Toronto Scarborough, uh, who's just amazing. I, I mean, she's a bug biologist. She did her original PhD thesis on the cannibalistic sex practices of black widow spiders. And when we were finishing first animals, I said to Mady, okay, what's next? And she said, how about bug sex? And uh, I said, okay. And we just started talking and she's uh, actually the story editor on this. And, and she was able to point us in the direction of all sorts of her colleagues who were just as enthusiastic and wonderful as she was. So um, we realized too that we didn't have the sort of Attenborough style budget to go and <laughs> to go and do a, a a major extravaganza. But what we did have were great scientists. So we wanted to we wanted a number of things. We wanted it to be fun, while the science while delivering science. We wanted it to be funny. Um, we wanted it to be fairly exotic. Um, but we also wanted it to be just as much about the people studying the bugs as the bugs themselves. And, and those were kind of the, those were kind of our own, the marching orders we gave ourselves as we went out the door. That's super cool. Yeah. And you can totally see how the flexibility you gave yourself there to talk about, not just the science, but the scientists sort of comes through as you, as you go through it. Um, but then, so I, I love this question because I, Whenever someone like yourself sort of does a deep dive in these kind of topics, I always 
always come across stuff that you're like, wow, this exists. Who would have guessed, you know, like it just, because, because there's so much complexity that exists in all of these areas. So was there one or a couple things that like surprised you that you were like, when you came across them or someone told you that you're like, wait, what? Well, I think, you know, the, one of the things that uh, anybody that thinks what we've been doing is because of the title is a frivolous exercise. I like to come back with the story of Marlene Zook in Hawaii. And Marlene Zook is one of the world's leading uh, um, bug biologists. She's at the University of Minnesota, author. Uh, she actually has a great book called Sex on Six Legs. So she's got a little bit of the sense of humor, too. But in the 90s, she was on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And uh, it was the first time she was there. And she went out to collect uh, oceanic field cricket samples. And she goes out to the lawn where they should be. And normally at night in a place like Hawaii, just like around here in the summer, you hear crickets almost to a deafening level. She didn't hear anything, but she could see them running around on the on the grass. So she captured some males and she dissected them and their insides were filled with, with, with uh, parasitic fly maggots. What had happened was that when the males were doing their mating call and they used their wings to do a mating call to draw in a female, they were also uh, drawing in these parasitic flies who were dropping their wriggling larvae onto the flies' backs, and then they burrowed in and turned them into zombie crickets. And uh, that isn't really healthy for the cricket population. So over the course of 20 generations, which is less than five years, they had a complete evolutionary adaptation where their wing structure changed and they went silent. And that has now uh, spread to almost all of the male oceanic field crickets on a, on, on uh, Kauai, 50% of them on Oahu. And we were on the big island of Hawaii, and we found the first ones there. So that that's just a remarkable example of how wild it is, but also how dangerous and how quickly evolution can work if it has to. Um, so that's what we, we really want to try to stress is that there's so much to learn about life mating evolution just by studying bugs. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something incredible that you, you don't think about until you sort of get into it is because of their life cycles being so short, the changes can be so quick. It's and amazing. that's not something that you, obviously we don't see that in our daily lives almost you know ever or ever because our the large megafauna we deal with mostly take millennia to maybe evolve. Whereas... You know, you get these smaller insects that have such shorter lifespans. You can see changes in remarkably short periods of time, as you just you described. Well, like Marlene says, if a peacock, if a male or a peacock, not a peahen, but if a peacock all of a sudden lost his feathers, we'd notice it's the same thing. It's 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 an ornament there to try to attract the female, just like the mating call from the cricket. And but with the cricket, you know, his uh uh, I don't know how many great grandparents it would be, but it was 20 generations. Like that's how much he's changed. And when you look at the wing structure, you can see it's changed. It, it, it is a completely different mutation. So the problem for those crickets now is how they find a mate and scientists right. don't know yet. This is, I think, part of the other thing is that um, it's amazing how much we don't know. There's a little section in, in the film where we talk to, where we get each of the, asked all the scientists the same question, you know, what's the most common answer? And the most common answer is we don't know. It's it's just amazing how much is a mystery still out there. Yeah. And that's something that I always find so intriguing about this kind of like deep research on specific 
topics and stuff like that. I remember a couple of years ago, I listened to this, like, I think it was an hour long podcast exclusively about fireflies. And it's mm. still, you know, like the amount we don't know about fireflies alone, it could fill novels and books forever. Um, and so maybe that's your answer to the next question, but I, maybe there's another one I'd be interested. Is there anything that sort of struck you from the work you've done that made you think, ah, oh, man, more people need to know about this. Like this is actually something that that people need to be aware of and and in grasp. I think, yeah, and and funnily enough, the thing that strikes me the most is actually a human, a bit of human behavior as opposed to bug behavior. Um, we we go to Uruguay and we film with Dr. Anita Eisenberg, um, and she's a spider expert. She works with uh, wolf spiders in, in, in the sand dunes along the ocean in Uruguay. And um, about a decade ago, she was looking at uh, female alicosa spiders. So an alicosa is a Uruguayan, a Uruguayan uh, species of wolf spider, lack of a better term, alicosa. What she found was that the females were doing the courting. And in, in not just in bug world, but in animal world, it's generally the male. It's not too often that the female does the courting. And what was happening is at night, the females were coming out onto the beach. They would find a male, male burrow. The males would burrow and wait in the, at the bottom of these, these shafts. And they crawl in. And if the male likes them, and if she likes the male's burrow that he's built, then they'll have sex. He'll leave her the burrow. She'll have the spiderlings. But if he doesn't like her, he'll eat her. And that is a complete opposite behavior of if a lot of people are probably familiar with uh, there are certain species of black widow where the female eats the male after mating. And um, the reason that that we didn't know about this until 10 years ago wasn't because they just started doing it. It's because in the academy, most of the biologists were men. And they they just assumed that the most interesting sexual behavior was among the males. It, it's take now that so many more women have have joined the science world and we've got a lot in this film um they're looking at things in a different way and they're finding out all this stuff that was under our noses the whole time about how females behave and it, it as as anita says we were only getting half the picture now we're getting so much more it's actually a deluge of stuff and that's what really blew me away that that human behavior can actually affect how we study the science. Nobody deliberately said, we're not going to go look at female bugs. They just didn't. And, um, and I found that in other places too. There's other, other female scientists have talked about that. So in a lot of ways, the, the world is wide open for study for them because there's all of this stuff that's been ignored. Yeah. It's so fascinating that when you got into that, I couldn't help but think about some of the other places where this, I know this happens. Like, I, I believe this is true and people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm quite certain that a vast majority of trees planted in urban settings are males for exactly <laughs> oh, really? this reason. And many of these male trees release different pollens and stuff that make people actually more allergic. And so we are actually making some of our hair more uh, allergenic, uh, however you call it, whatever you'd call the word to yeah. make you have allergies, allergies, because like of arborists being mostly men and men being like, I'm going to plant only male trees. And That's it has wild. The yeah, it's very like it's exact same dynamic, right? It's just like we're just gonna do this thing, and it's, at some point, people were like, "Why?" I know, I know. 
I know what about this right and and, yeah. and um and so I I found that I found that really a wake-up call like I found that alarming and I, I've done a fair amount of science talks and it made me think about the other ones you know <laughs> um like I know in archaeology it was men for decades and now there are so many more women in the field in terms of the archaeologists I know there are so many more women in the field and and it's just a different approach a lot of the time it's just a different approach to the science yeah and just the sort of yeah, I mean, and, and it becomes better science, right? Um, oh, yeah. And so, if I can get you, get you, give me one uh, a third sort of uh, piece from the from the film before we before we head to another music break. Um, I'd be curious to know if there's a particular experience that sort of stands out to you from making this film. Obviously, you know, you didn't have the Attenborough budget, so you might not have your running with the spiders story. Um, but uh, but was there something that you did uh, or you learned or experienced during this thing that really stood out to you? Well, we did get our hands on a macro lens. Uh, <laughs> that, that I'd never seen before. It looks kind of like a police baton, for lack of a of, of a better comparison. And that thing, um, that was that was uh, like absolutely essential. We just took it with us everywhere we went, so we could turn virtually any place into like a four K widescreen uh, studio with bugs filling up the screen. And it at first I didn't know really how we were going to tackle the macro footage especially when we were outside of a lab situation but this thing was incredibly versatile and also i was working with terrific terrific uh technicians but this this thing was incredibly versatile and and you and you have to learn a new way of filmmaking where you're getting your ultra wide shots of beaches and all that stuff but you're also setting up these situations where you can try to record animals having sex very intimately uh that being said it doesn't mean they will um we we spent two full days at university of toronto scarborough with the cipadaris which is a a really loud uh tree cricket from alberta and they didn't breed <laughs> 10 hours of standing around and as somebody says in the film i've spent more time watching animals not have sex yeah so it uh it there was a lot of trial and error but really i think we're pretty lucky we got what we got yeah, that's fair. I mean, like, yeah, like this kind of thing is so difficult because you're still dealing with wild animals slash insects. And so yeah, like, not gonna be what they themselves. do, yeah, exactly. They'll do whatever they want. That's The, that's the, their, and their the, the other thing I'll tack on too is that mm -hmm. uh, with, with the change in climate, it was a cooler summer out West. So we had planned our visits to uh, the bush near Hinton, Alberta and to the, uh, and to Saanich on Vancouver Island where there's a black widow spider colony. Um, and, um, we planned it for the right time of years, what the scientists always told us, but because it was a cooler spring, everything was behind. So we kept arriving in these places where, well, geez, if you're just here two weeks from now. So when we were shooting the black widow spiders at night, um, on the beach near Saanich, we, our scientists had actually caught three male black widows. Normally they're all over the place and the females are living under driftwood. And um, we caught these three males. They're the only ones we saw for the three, four days we were there. And they became our sex stunt males. We just kept introducing them into the scene. And as soon as one looked like he was tired, we'd move him out and put another one in. So <laughs> there's, you know, they were, they were from there. It wasn't a fake or anything like that. Right. It's just, there just weren't that many around. So we had to be careful with what we could find. Right. That makes a lot of live, sense. Live and learn. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so okay. folks, do you want to learn more about this uh, and see this documentary? How can they do it? Oh, it's on uh, The Nature of Things on uh, Friday, March 10th. I believe it's at nine o'clock. 
930 Newfoundland. And then it's going to be on again that weekend on CBC Gem. I'm not sure the times for Gem, but I know Gem generally runs this stuff a lot. So if you miss it on Friday, um, you can catch it on Gem and it'll be on demand on there too. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, this has Welcome. been Andrew Gregg uh, of Red Trillium Films, who directed the, again, perfectly named film, Bug Sex. It's about exactly what you think. Go check it out on March 10th of The Nature of Things. Thanks so much, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Great shows over there if you want to check them out. As previewed earlier on the show, I am here with Rachel Wang, a community organizer with the Bike Brigade. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So by way of introduction... What is the Bike Brigade? Yeah, so the Bike Brigade is a relatively new group of folks. We emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic, or rather at the beginning in March 2020. And really, it was just a small group of folks that cycled and and wanted to leverage the privileges that we had as people with able bodies, access to a bike, time to volunteer and, and deliver supplies to our neighbors that needed it. So right now we've grown to a community of volunteers that basically continue to do that. We deliver food and other essential supplies for mutual aid groups, other grassroots groups, food banks, and other nonprofits in, in the food security and, and other spaces as well in the city. Awesome. And so how did you begin to get sort of interested in this intersection of community service and food security and, and cycling? Oh my goodness. It's honestly, I have no idea. It's extremely random. I would say that it was just a really interesting collision of sort of having that sense of helplessness and apathy as, as many of us did during the pandemic and also feeling, you know, varying levels of privilege too, and how I felt in terms of safety and, and moving around during the pandemic kind of paired with clear needs and gaps for people that needed home delivery for things like food and PPE, like masks or medicine, especially for our seniors and and those in our communities that are immunocompromised. And then paired that with cycling, you know, cycling was turned to be like the safest way to get around. And, and so all those three coalesced together and really just provided a really cool opportunity for me and, and many others to to do this work. That's sort of how I got into it. Cool. Yeah. I really like how this story is really not one of exactly pre-planning. It's more of just like 
recognizing a need, trying to figure out how to solve that need, and then building on to that, and especially like the way that you sort of come into cycling as you weren't like cycling advocates who decided that you wanted to do something cycling related. You were people who noted that there was a need for delivery, which, you know, if folks remember early pandemic, that was huge, right? So, so many people suddenly couldn't safely get groceries. And so that need was massive. And I know that like there were across the city, there were things like food banks partnering with like delivery drivers and other stuff. And so this was like of another version of that to get into this particular area. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting that you sort of, it came naturally. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It, that's exactly it, where we were very reactive and just responding to partnerships and partners that we've, we've had individually or collectively as a group to sort of follow their lead and responding to those needs. One of the key groups that we really sought guidance from was the Parkdale People's Economy that really helped, you know, situate us in, in what was actually needed in our role in, in supporting that. And now that we've had some time, I mean, there's not that much time, but now that we've had a little bit more time to be proactive and less reactive, it's it's been a good phase where we've kind of developed our, you know, our strategic plan those nice nonprofit buzzwords to to think about what our role is and what exactly we want to accomplish in in recognizing that there are deep rooted issues here like food security that that can't be solved through just home delivery of food. So there there are ways that we want to meaningfully support without just providing band aid solutions, but also recognizing that for sure there are immediate needs that need that need support now. Yeah, that's such a hard challenge between the sort of immediate needs of people and and trying to actually attack systems. And so I want to get to that in half a second. But before we do, I wonder if you can tell us a little more about the origins and how, you know, how how did Bike Brigade start and then how has it grown over the over the years? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting story because such random I keep saying random because honestly the COVID pandemic was was a, a strange time to build new friendships and relationships and and build this this group, but it, it really was a unique experience. So it was our our friend Dave who calls himself the biking lawyer, and he's like an avid cyclist, a really sort of what you think about when you think of a, a Toronto cyclist. And it, it was his idea to bike around these things, these food items and food hampers and medicines on bike to support our, our seniors and put put out a call out to folks and i remember seeing it and message him was like what are you doing <laughs> what is this and and can we build together can we build something together so it was it was it was his rad idea to do this and eventually also brought on a you know marketing communications person to really help us with recruitment and then a technology person who just came out of the blue and helped us build our own you know in-house dispatch application to do all this behind the scenes logistics and so it really just swelled from, I would say, creating community. So the community that people wanted to be part of and contribute to. And when you create a space like that, it, it really attracts a lot of people who have such so much to contribute. And when you provide the, them with the resources to do what they do best, it, it really, whatever comes out of it is really beautiful. I think that's the best part of the bike brigade that I think that I've most enjoyed. That makes a lot of sense. And it's incredible that you were able to build such community at a time when almost every other institution was struggling and sort of and watching their community sort of crumble a little bit. Like one of the biggest challenges that I've heard time and time again from a lot of people doing organizing work right now 
is how hard it has been to come back from the loss of community that those years entailed. And so it's so interesting that you were able to create a space. And again, partially because you were designing it to be as safe as possible because it was outdoors, because it was, I'm like, I'm sure like largely organized online. And then all of that work allowed you to continue to build community and create a space where, you know, now you have tons and tons and tons of people working with you and engaging community in a way that allows them to sort of step in. But I'm sure like is not super overwhelming, which I think is a real key for being able to keep enough people engaged. That's exactly it. Yeah, I'd say that the the one really fascinating thing to watch is that when you have all these deliveries, it, it's impossible for one person to do them all. And so when you see that swell of many people doing whatever they can, whatever capacity they have, and still getting things done, it's it's really great. So you feel you never feel like you're the whole organization is dependent on you. if you leave, if you need to take rest, you need to take a moment for yourself and also life happens, that's okay because someone else will be there to support if you provide the information and share information in in a way that's kind of working towards that collective leadership model. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like that really speaks to also your intentionality around the kind of community you're building. And one of the things that sort of I found during my sort of preliminary research for this conversation was the the five community values that you that you sort of hold on to to do this work. And for me, in my experience of especially loose organizing, you know, that is when the values alignment is so important because there isn't sort of the strict hierarchical structures or other structures to keep the organization in place. And so you really have to be connected to the values themselves. And so can you tell us what those values are and how they inform your work? For sure. So the the five values are climate and environmental justice, equity and intersectionality, integrity, empowerment, and solidarity, not charity. And I will say if anyone has ever participated in strategic planning or mission value statements, you'll know that these are just a bunch of pretty words that people liked <laughs> and put together and thought really encompassed the conversations. I would say that they we're, we're certainly happy with them. And I think the way that we, we've tried to action these is through our anti-oppression framework. So within this framework, it not only includes policies around you know, racial discrimination, harassment, violence, and things like that, but it also includes specific policy commitments, which are informed by, by these values and sort of guided by them. And that can look like anything from like a very broad sort of general <clears throat> perspective around recruitment in terms of really diversifying recruitment efforts, investing in them so that we're reaching communities that we want to reach in terms of moving towards a goal of being more representative of the communities that we're serving, all the way to to more specific, concrete examples, like providing an equity-informed fund to make sure our volunteers can access funds to fix, maintain, and access bikes and safety equipment for themselves. And so it's, it's a range of different commitments that we try our best to strive for and, and do so through through these values. But you're absolutely right. It's it's important, even though they're pretty words, it is always important to, to resituate yourself and reground yourself in what you're doing and how you want to do it. And especially being a, a participant of this in this nonprofit industrial complex now, we're realizing that it is increasingly important to remember what those values are. Yeah, for sure. You said something there that I think is so important, which is how you do things ends up being 
arguably more important than even what you do, or is at least on par, right? Doesn't matter how good the means are, if you are doing it in a way that holds up sort of oppressive structures, it's not going to generate the outcomes you want, right? You, you're so much more easily corruptible. It's so much more likely to go down some dark paths. And yeah, so like that part is so fascinating. I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear more about like how you work towards that. Like how do you try to hold yourself to that standard? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> we're, con we're constantly learning. We're constantly growing and failing. And it's it's all of that good stuff. Honestly, I think we, we we just live in a bunch of contradictions too. So so these values then become so important as we we justify the decisions that we make and then can adapt and improve in our decision making in the future based on lessons learned from that decision, but knowing that we we are guided by these values. And I think one of the primary ways that we do try our best to do this work is is make sure that we're always our work is informed by our partners so we really rely on our partners to tell us what our role should be and and exactly what the needs are so that we're not assuming anything and we're not just coming in and saying we're providing the service integrate us into your system kind of thing so it's it's done by two sort of main ways one through our logistics team so each person who's a volunteer is a campaign lead or partner leads. So they build that relationship with the partner and they connect on a weekly basis around deliveries and needs and sort of has that relationship with that, with that contact. And so we're constantly coming together as a group to, to sort of build on lessons learned, share, share these with, with other campaign or partner leads to see if they're experiencing the same things or seeing the same needs. And then the second way too is through our tech team. So our technology team is really great in their vision is basically to ensure that tools, technology tools, which are not necessarily the solutions, they're just tools, are accessible for mutual aid organizers, for grassroots organizers, that this is not something that we're trying to make proprietary. It's not something we're trying to sell later on it's it's all open source on github and it's it's open for people to contribute to to use and to access so there there are a couple of ways yeah that we we try our best to to make sure that we're constantly getting that iterative feedback to make sure we're not just going down this path where we're like this is what's happening this is what we think the needs are like that's not the way to go right that makes a lot of sense and did I understand that right? That you're building, like, you're, that you're creating software or, or services, or tech services that could be used by like other folks trying to do the same thing as you. Yeah. So it, in in short, basically, it it's it's there. The code is there. Anyone can access it. I I am I have no like I have no technology expertise at all. So all I could say is go to GitHub and it's open source. It's there's something there. I can see it. None of it makes sense to me. But we have a tech team that will be more than happy to to connect with folks. And, and that's actually how we got some of our volunteers as well as they've seen it. They've come across it and, and reached out. But that that is the intention. Yeah. That's super cool. And I, the other thing that I will say that I thought was interesting that you noted there was that you want to ensure that volunteers have access to repairing their own bicycles. Because there's something there about that sort of, you said that, that fifth thing of solidarity, not charity. And I think making it possible for people to be able to do this and to be able to volunteer is has to be a part of that, right? Like it can't just be the people who can afford to have the tools to like do the bike rides to 
to be the bike riders because that really creates a, a class differential. Whereas if you're actually able to support the people, everyone to be able to, vol to be volunteers and be the service providers, that really flips the script here and, and does create a much more obviously solidarity approach to the whole operation. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we've, we've struggled too with, with coming up with initiatives that are, that are working towards that in a meaningful way. So I would say that, that the bike brigade is still pretty representative of what the Toronto cycling community looks like. It's a very like white, it's hetero space. And so creating more, um, community events that are that are specific to folks that are have been historically marginalized from this from this community is something that we're trying to work towards especially through the the equity informed fund which more people are using which is helpful um, we also recently completed a fundraiser for bike Pog, which is one of our partners and we tried to raise funds for their bike match program and they do some great work in getting people on bikes amazing and so I'm curious, given that, you know, you've, you've sort of gone through this experience the last couple of years and you've done like some of the most significant organizing of, of, her, of the past few years in terms of growing your space and growing your impact. I'm curious if there's anything you've learned that might be helpful for other folks in other organizing spaces as people navigate the sort of this, I don't want to say new world, but you know what I mean, this, the 2023, shall we say. Yeah, I don't know if our lessons are going to be I'm not necessarily applicable, but I would say they're not lessons, they're, they're more reflections, and we have a lot of them. So for example, I would say the most significant is the fact that we started off as a really community-based grassroots group from, from the very beginning and has evolved into this not-for-profit entity. So we are incorporated, and as such, we are now held to those those requirements, you know, having financial statements for, for audit, having a board. And by having a board, we inherently now absorb this hierarchical structure where we have that board, where we have to have this, this executive director and so on and so forth. And so for us, it was really trying to figure out infrastructure that would better support a horizontal structure while still maintaining our requirements and our legal obligations as being a not-for-profit. So we have no lessons learned. <laughs> It's more reflections on how can we do this better and an invitation for people to join us in this conversation because we don't have the right answer. And we are trying a variety of things, including communities of practice that are typically what people would usually form committees for under nonprofits, but rather communities of practice that integrate not just board members and staff, but also volunteers, our wider volunteer community, and extending the invitation to our partners as well to provide a sort of richer narrative around specific focus areas like development and fundraising, like operations and technology and things like that. So I would say this is something that we're constantly trying to navigate and learn from and do better in, but it is a constant challenge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm working with a, another group that is sort of trying to navigate this question of do you formalize or don't you formalize and what are the trade-offs and it's, you know, is inherently more difficult to be responsible to your community once you formalized because then you have that board that's not that is like somewhat entrenched in a way that like anyway it is a it is a difficult challenge and so i i can appreciate the the fact that you have only reflections rather than lessons learned because i mean there's a lot to it, it takes time and i think that you don't really know what works and what doesn't until years down the road often so i'm curious you know, 
a good portion of our listeners are in the Toronto area. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of walk me through the the usual pattern for folks joining and getting involved as a volunteer. Like, how did that normally happen? Yeah, so there's their website. The website is up by brigade.ca. And if you navigate to the volunteer rider sign up, you can just fill out a form. And what that does is you just get added to our email list and you will start receiving a weekly email, which will have a link to our delivery calendar. And in the delivery calendar, you can basically sign up and select for whatever delivery suit your schedule and your capacity. And so that means that you don't have to commit necessarily on a weekly basis. You can kind of sit back check the email on Sunday and then sign up for whatever your capacity is that week. And that usually we, we find that as a low barrier sort of approach to volunteer opportunities and has worked well for us and um, pretty simple way of signing up as well. People can also email info at bikebrigade.ca if they want to volunteer for our internal team, if they want to volunteer for logistics or technology or just have questions, they're welcome to, to email us there as well. Sweet. So I think you sort of answered this question already, but in case there's any additional thoughts, how can folks learn more and support your work? Mm -hmm. People can learn more on our website. Again, they're, they're welcome to follow us on social media. We have an Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter page. Pages? <laughs> I'm so bad at social media. <laughs> the handle is at the bike brigade. And we often post photos and call-outs, volunteer opportunities, and retweet a lot of things or repost a lot of things from our partners as well. Those are good spots to, to follow along. Awesome. And so finally, it's our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show, an opportunity to sort of speak generically to our audience about something that you want sort of want to drive home or some thought you think is important. So I'll throw to that to you in a second. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much. Rachel Wang, community organizer with the Bike Brigade. Really appreciate you coming on the show, talking about your work and the great work that you do. It's truly inspiring to, to see someone and a group of people sort of pick up such a needed cause and find a way to slowly expand it and take on some of the, the larger social issues. But yeah, thank you so much. And any last thoughts? Love that. Love that. And I and I love the Green Majority. It's, it's a fantastic platform, I feel. I felt really good watching the video that y'all had on your website where it's like coming together to learn more about how to build and repair. It's just, it's just lovely. So thank you for the invitation. I would say one final point to, to, to share, and it's more of another, it's another reflection because I guess that's all I do is around, I can't still think of the nonprofit industrial complex. What your, your questions peaked for me was this concept around like funding and development and fundraising as a not-for-profit. And I feel like specifically when I talk about challenges of this complex, it's just that. And so figuring out for your organization, what, where your funding comes from and how you approach being funded is something that is, is always a good discussion to have. So for example, one question that we asked ourselves was, should we be receiving state funding from a city that is violently clearing our unhoused neighbor neighbors from encampments and closing shelters? Is this something we want to be connected to? Do we want to be promoting the fact that people financially support us, that they'll get a tax receipt? Is that something we want to use to incentivize giving? Do we want to be in spaces, for example, with grants that our partners are in also? Do we belong in a space 
within competing for resources when our mission is to support our partners, do we want to be competing for those resources? And so there's all these different questions that we ask ourselves that we also encourage others to ask of, of themselves within the organizations that they work for, because I feel like what might come out of that is more collaboration, is more connection, is more sharing of resources and things like that. So I, I would welcome anyone that wants to collaborate is what I tried to say and, and just moving forward together in a good way where we, where we support each other.